Hello, 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 friends, and welcome to another episode of While We Were Waiting, where we share expert insight and true tales from inside the restaurant industry. I'm your host, Martha Madison. And I'm your co-host and Martha's husband, AJ Gilbert. Well, we have got a great show planned today with my dear friend and cocktail queen, Julie Reiner. She's currently the owner and operator of Brooklyn-based cocktail hotspots, Clover Club and Leyenda. She's also the author of The Craft Cocktail Party, Amazing Drinks for Every Occasion. And she and her bars have also been the recipient of three James Beard nominations amongst numerous other fancy awards and best of titles. I mean, talk about the future being female. Julie also shares a hilarious story about being fired for quote, being too good at her job, which plays in nicely to today's theme, neglecting potential. But first... Well, first, really a pleasure to talk to Julie. She is a very impressive woman and a bright light. I have met her in crowded bars before, but never <laughs> talked with headphones on and such. And uh, it was just great. Well, I credit her for teaching me everything I needed to learn and know uh, early on in my restaurant career. Uh, she really was my mentor. And uh, how lucky am I that I learned all the basics from such a, uh, an important person in the restaurant world. That's great. And we are trying to do live to tape because we don't have a lot of time to edit. So we're not going to be able to cut out your rants about chemtrails or that oh, it's okay to drink when you're pregnant or any <laughs> of the things up. that we cut out from every episode. So just hold it in. Oh my God. <laughs> you are ruined for later, AJ. <laughs> so not even sure what that means. So what means happens? You're going to pay for that. Go ahead. Okay. So what happens if COVID comes to dinner is what we've oh. been reading about and kind of thinking about this week, right? So a couple of Dallas area restaurants, and I'd read about this in some other cities, have closed down one for like two weeks because one of their employees was diagnosed with COVID and they're just waiting to see if anybody else has it. There's another restaurant that didn't deal with it that well, and they had somebody who was sick and they just sent them home and it turned out that she had COVID. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, so these are restaurants that are operating at 50% capacity now. I'm curious, does anybody ever eat there again? What happens? I, I mean, this is like the big challenge, right? Well, nothing good happens. <laughs> but what I will say, I mean, like today in Texas, we have the highest number of coronavirus cases uh, today since the very beginning and well, all throughout the country. I mean, and it doesn't seem to correlate very well with, you know, Texas ended the kind of more stringent lockdowns a bit earlier than like California, but California is having a huge outbreak. Right. It just seems like, you know, maybe, and you know, it's funny because everybody's trying to politicize this in Arizona and, and such. And we just need to really recognize what's happening is this is really bad virus that's circulating through the society. Right. I mean, I don't think that I've seen any leadership in, in the sense that, you know, there's some way to get around this at this point, right? We can't stay closed forever um, and people are going to get it and restaurants are going to open, close, open, close. And so I think now we just need to, as restaurateurs, really be looking at um, how we can survive this multiple times because I think that this is going to go on until... Um, you know, we come up with some kind of vaccine or herd immunity at this point. So I read, and I, I don't 
I don't remember where I read this and I might not be quoting it correctly, but somebody did kind of a regression study of other pandemics like H1N1 and and the Spanish flu in 1918. And this pattern of them kind of dying off a little bit in the summertime and then picking up again in the, again in the fall is almost universal, right? So what we're seeing right now, hopefully this is not true, but it may be the good times. And I, I think that that is <laughs> frightening. That's and then, bleak. <laughs> yeah. God. And then you, you lead into, you know, again, kind of our subject matter, which I guess is, is more universal than just talking about restaurants because that's just scary. But, you know, what do you do if you have a restaurant and one of your staff gets sick or two of your staff get sick and then they come back and it happens again? I mean, how many of these things can any business survive and will the businesses that it's happening to now survive? And it just is a huge uh, obstacle that, that restaurants are going to have to deal with? And I don't know the answer. Right. Well, I think the answer is testing, right? If, if you could literally go to work and get a test every day and know that you don't have coronavirus, that is the way out. I don't know if that's reasonable to expect or hope for, but um, you know, that's kind of what it's going to be. Right. Uh, but I mean, the people who haven't had tests don't want to test. Well, I don't think that's true. I think that a lot of people well, haven't gotten No, it. no. I saw the president at the CDC oh, oh. said anybody who wants a test. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I missed your sarcasm, AJ. Sorry. That's so unlike me. Um, I think there is enough <laughs> testing now. At least, you know, there's free testing. I see the signs every time I drive around. There is. Can... I get like uh, text alerts from the urgent care here saying, come get your coronavirus test. Like it's like I've won a sweepstakes or something. Um <laughs> But I think, you know, like my sister is about to go and quarantine for two weeks because she's going to go and visit her in-laws who are, you know, uh, older. And that was the deal they made, you know, that they would quarantine. And she's like, you know, it's, it's so hard to, you know, shut down everything for two full weeks. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just get in the car, you know, drive there to Utah and get a coronavirus test on the way to show them that we don't have it by the time we get there. And well, yes, they probably that would be the could. answer. They probably could. I think that. I don't the, know. I don't know I think if you it, can just drive up with no symptoms and get a coronavirus test. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. And I think it depends on where you are. But I mean, you could certainly say you had symptoms. I just think the problem is, is that it takes a long time to show up. So you can be exposed to it. And then I think it maybe it takes five days mm -hmm. before the test would reveal a positive. Um, Right. You know, uh, yeah, we've got a ways to go. Got a ways to go. Now, today's uh, theme for the episode is uh, neglected potential. And I really wanted to talk about something that struck me this week. You know, I've been um, very tuned into the Black Lives Matter movement and really trying to listen and learn and, and understand where I can be a good ally in this this fight for equal justice, right? And um, knowing that we have this outlet as the podcast, I really wanted to get um, uh, a restaurateur or a chef or a senior leader in the restaurant industry, uh, you know, an African-American person to come in and really talk about a lot of this, you know, the, the, the struggles that they faced in business and, and all that. And as I was looking for someone to reach out to, I it occurred to me, there are really there aren't very many. And I was really taken aback by that because I've always had this idea uh, from my experience in restaurants that, you know, restaurants are where a lot of uh, minority groups land because it offers an entry level opportunity where you can really work your way all the way into senior management and ownership. And, and it offers opportunity to a lot of people who might not otherwise be, um, 
exposed to those types of opportunities. But and so I've watched a lot of my Hispanic friends and Asian friends and, um, you know, a lot of different friends from different classes and, you know, uh, races and genders really excel in the restaurant industry. But there is uh, there is a shortage of black people in this industry. And I want to know why I don't understand why. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always been very proud and I've always thought the restaurant business was really misunderstood when it comes to labor laws and such because it creates opportunities for people who come from nothing and might have, you know, literally walked across the border and can end up, you know, living in San Francisco or New York, making $125,000 a year running a restaurant within the space of five eight years or something. And I don't think a lot of businesses do that. And I think the restaurant business has a right to be proud of the opportunities that it offers. Mm -hmm. There is something going on with black people in leadership positions, at least in the kind of, you know, super kind of fine dining and Mm -hmm. restaurants that, that you work with the most often. And uh, I don't know why that is either. I, I have, you know, we've, we've obviously talked about this before we started recording, now, I've opened restaurants in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York, mm-hmm. and some halfway in Dallas. Um, the They're all very cosmopolitan cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we opened in LA, Joe and I, I think we talked about it one night. We were had a very at, diverse staff in right, LA. We, we were struck at how much more uh, inclusive Los Angeles was. And, you know, So San Francisco is very racially diverse, but um, it's not integrated. Right. I, and, you know, I, I haven't lived there for a while. So if anybody's like, you know, and I know that San Franciscans were the best city ever. And, you know, but but everybody lives in separate <laughs> neighborhoods and um, and it's, it's not a particularly integrated city in Los Angeles. It was completely different. Uh, and I know Los Angeles certainly historically has not had a great reputation of integration. I'm not minimizing that. The best by far was New York. Um mm-hmm. You know, New York. New York's uh, real- always been America's melting pot, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you could say the same thing about the other coast as well. I, I maybe not. Obviously I don't think not. So. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but I, I was really struck by that, and and you know, I think that, you know, from operating a restaurant, you know, a lot of people start, you know, as waiters or bartenders, and then they, if they're interested, they work into, and sometimes when they're not interested, they work into management. And if they are really interested, they start to kind of work up that, that, that ladder. And, and in San Francisco, that was much tougher because there weren't a lot of minorities that would want to come that would apply for waiting jobs, uh, as compared to Los Angeles and New York. So that's, that's my only real observation. I'm sure that there's much more to it, but that's, well, I've been doing, I've been doing some reflecting as well. And I, you know, my experiences in the restaurant industry are almost solely New York and, and Los Angeles. Um, I feel like I always worked in very dynamic, uh, um, and diverse and completely inclusive environments, especially at Luna Park LA. What I will say I noticed from where I sit now as a recruiter is that I, I feel like there's a good amount of diversity in restaurants at the hourly level. But when you start looking at management, um, you know, in the higher level ranks, you don't see it as much. And, uh, you know, I would like to kind of make a plea to the restaurant industry in general and to all of my restaurateur friends out there to really take a hard look at who you're hiring, who you're promoting, and really, you know, ask yourself that question, who and why, um, and, and start 
start there. You know, I feel like that's a good way for us to start recognizing how we can better help, um, you know, communities who may be looking for an opportunity in our industry. So there's been a lot of study about this in technology because technology, again, a very coastal based industry turns out not very inclusive. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of research done because that's what technology companies do is they study things as to why this is. And it turns out that when people are interviewing and making hiring decisions, what they think of when they're finding people that are qualified is people that remind them of themselves. Right. Right. So if you're sitting across a table and, you know, I think I'm sure I've said this, uh, you know, boy, that person really had the same ideas that I did or really Mm -hmm. agreed with, you know, or Or they they said that they said something to me me or right. They said something to me that I've said before. I just heard, you know, and that that, you know, that's how we made that connection. And that might be the place that we could all. Right. Examine what we're doing. First of all, we're narrowing the ideas that we're going to hear, and we're not challenging ourselves by people who have different experiences, right? right. And uh, that might be the place that we could we could work on is in the interview process, wondering if the person who doesn't represent our ideas is doing this because they have a different cultural perspective, a different life experience. Or different might, educational background, those things, you know, we have to look at those. Right. And, and, you know, if you pride yourself on, you know, on training and you, you know, you, you think that, you know, maybe them having your same ideas is not the place to start. Maybe you should start broader by and think about yourself. capability. Right. While We Were Waiting is brought to you by One House Hospitality Recruiters, a full service hospitality recruitment firm serving all of North America. For more information, check out our website at one-house.com. That's O-N-E-H-A-U-S.com. So we're very excited to welcome our special guest, my dear friend and mentor. I like to call her my mentor, Julie Reiner. Welcome to the show. Yay. Hi, Julie. Hi. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. How are you doing is what I want to know. What's going on in New York City? Oh, you know, (laughs) I'm making drinks off of a folding table in the front of my bar. Oh my Um, gosh. Tell me everything. First of all, how did you, when you got the news that everything was going to be shut down and, and you know, what, what was that like for you? What happened? Well, you know, it was, it was interesting because I was heading to San Francisco uh, around the 12th of March to judge the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. And, you know, prior to that was like, I had just had a meeting with my partners about how, you know, how we were going to sanitize. And, you know, we're like, okay, (laughs) you know, it was like, we're ordering cleaning products and all of this stuff. And then I went to the airport and it, and I called my wife, Susan, I was just like, you know, it was, wasn't until I got to the airport that I, it, I felt like this is really serious because of the vibe at the mm-hmm. airport. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like there was nobody there and the people that were there, were, everybody was just like not touching anything. And, you know, yep. um, and I, you know, I called her and I was like, should I not be getting on this plane? There's something that it just feels different now that I'm here. Like, this is really not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up going anyway, you know, uh, and when I got to San Francisco, it just escalated 
kids so quickly. And I ended up leaving early to get back home because I was afraid that I was going to get stuck there. Um, Mm -hmm. And the news, as you know, the news cycle was just moving at like a thousand miles, you know, a minute. Yeah. That was the um, same week that we flew to New York and we, it was the same thing. We were at the airport and kind of like, eh, I don't know. And then once we got to New York, you know, the president's shutting down travel to Europe and giving this address and we're like, oh crap, <laughs> let's go home. <laughs> yeah. So it was a very strange time. So I, I flew back to New York anyway, and I landed that Sunday morning, which ended up being that brunch service that Sunday ended up being our last service. And I went directly from the airport to Clover Club. And, um, you know, we were just talking, you know, meeting and talking with the staff about how, how to, what we're going to be doing and how to shut it down. And it was just so much unknown um, at the time. And what prompted you to close? Was it the, uh, the order of the city at that point? Or was that just your decision. The city ordered closing a couple days later. We felt uh, so many people on our staff were just very nervous and we didn't want to put anybody in danger. You know, Um, obviously we work in an industry of being very close in close quarters with people and touching their plates and their food and their drinks and, you know, um, and so we, as a group, just decided that we would shut it down. Uh, it was the 15th. Um, How did that feel to close down? <clears throat> I, you know, I, I think that people that don't own a restaurant or a bar might not understand how much it feels like you have to close all the time, right? I mean, you're always kind of fighting to stay open. And how did it feel to make that decision and and close? Yeah, it's it's a tough business. Um, it, it was scary, you know? I mean, we... I've, I've worked my whole life to, to, uh, create these bars and these spaces and, um, you know, the unknown of like, how long are we going to be closed? Are people going to be getting sick? And, you know, obviously New York had it the worst of anybody in, in the U S. Um, and so, you know, it just, it, it became frightening because it is our, that's our livelihood, you know, and, my wife and I both work in the restaurants. It's so we don't have any diversification, you know, as far right. as like, oh, your job is still going, but mine is not, which is... We hear that over yeah, here. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So when you don't diversify, I mean, it, it, it's, it was scarier because we weren't sure how we were going to be making money. Right. Now, flash forward to um, getting the the okay to start reopening. I'm watching your social media and I'm watching you guys get so creative and how you were going to move forward. Uh, tell me your thought process and everything that happened. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so it, when we first closed down Ivy Mix, who is my partner uh, at Leyenda, and she's like the face of Leyenda, um, just put out a really awesome book, by the way, called Spirits of Latin America. Um, she was, she's younger than we are, and I think just less fearful. Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And she immediately was like, oh, I'm just going to do, I'm going to do to-go stuff out the window, and, and it'll just be me. And so she did that initially for the first few days and then just totally shut that down as well as the news got worse. Um, but when we, when we started to, to do to go cocktails, um, that was sort of in April. Um, I start mid April. I started to do to go cocktails, all of them out of Clover club 
representing both of our bars. Um, but it was really, it was like the owner show. So it was like Tom and Macy. <laughs> it was like Tom Macy and myself. So Tom would go in on one day and he would batch all of the drinks that, that were ordered. And then I would go in the next day and I would, you know, print out the orders and put them in all the bags and then go stand up at the front of Clover Club and wait for people to come by and tell me their name <laughs> It was literally like, that's put the amazing. Bag. It was crazy. It was like, put what the kind bag. of volume were you doing? I mean, not much, you know, I mean, in the grand scheme of things between the two bars together, it was like $5,000 a week. Did you feel like people were ordering these for the novelty or did they really want to take this cocktail home? What was the impetus of the guests coming to pick these up? Um, it was really a combination of things, you know, I mean, it was it a lot of neighborhood people who wanted to support Clover Club and Leanda in any way they could because they want to see us reopen on the other side of this. Right. right. Um, uh, it was also um, industry, you know, people, people who work for brands were were helping us and buying, you know, bottled cocktails. So the liquor companies that you buy liquor from were coming in and spending some money to support you guys in yeah, this like, new yeah, venture. More so the reps, you know, uh, less than, you know, like Southern wine and spirits. <laughs> but it's a testament to your, you know, community and, and how close that you, you know, you guys are with your community. We're still paying our kitchen crew from both sides of the street, uh, you know, for, at both bars. And um, we needed to have some income <laughs> coming in right, right. because we were just draining our accounts to keep our people, you know, afloat. Can I ask you, like, have you had to deal yet with like your lease and all of these things that are continuing to cost money while you're effectively, you know, not really open yet? We have. Uh, we're with our with our lease. We're very we were very lucky because our landlord um, lived upstairs from us, and has always, you know, was, is a really great guy. You know, his mom like bought six buildings on Smith street in the forties, basically. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so we're not dealing with a management company. Um, we're dealing with an actual human being. Um, and as you know, in New York, that's like gold. Um, you know, we went to him, uh, all through our, you know, there's a super who we work with does a lot of fix it stuff. And, and we, we called him and said, Hey, you know, this is, we, we stand to lose this amount of money (laughs) this year. Um, and we need help, you know? Um, and I think that he really realized that he, it would be get partial rent or get no rent because if we go out, nobody's opening a restaurant on right. the street exactly. know, in New York right now. Right. And smart landlords know that, but I think a lot of people are pushing back. So it's, yeah. What are you allowed to do now that you weren't allowed to do during kind of the height of the pandemic? So for the last three weeks or so, we have um, reopened both Clover Club and Leanda. Um, so running independently from each other, um, unlike, before. Uh, and I, I'm sure you've seen the photos on my social media. I literally have a, a like table, a folding table that's on bar stilts so that it's bar height (laughs) Um, (laughs) that I have set up like a bar at my front door. And, um, you know, we bought like a little refrigerator from the guy across the street who is not reopening to put behind us. And we have, we're, we're basically doing cocktails to go, um, in, either like a single serve, like in a plastic cup 
or you can buy the bottles that we were doing before also to go. Um, and our kitchen is open. Uh, so we're, we're available on caviar for delivery and through square on our website for pickup of, um, food and cocktails. Um, most of the business that we've been doing has been like walk up people, people walking up and ordering drinks right. know, to, to stay, to walk down the street. Well, they must what be very party. nice in the summertime to be able to do that. Totally. I mean, you know, you haven't been able to do that in New York before and, you know, to be able to get a cocktail and just keep walking uptown or something. I, would be very this, is, this is, the nights are so excited. <laughs> yeah. This is a regulation. I hope that will stay, <laughs> you know, especially in places like New York. What, what fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, I mean, the, the police have been, when we first reopened, the cops came by and they were very nice. And, you know, they said, you know, do your thing. Our biggest concern is that we don't want crowds outside of the bars. They, they didn't want the, the social interactions that they're preventing from being inside the bar to just happen on the street, which would have been right. a lot of fun, obviously, but that's what they were trying to prevent. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there were some pictures, I guess, of like over Memorial Day weekend and it was, you know, people on the Upper East Side and some guy passed out on a bench with his, with his mask on his chin, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And then like a crowd of like 40 people standing around him, not socially distancing from one another. Oh, it's so. still New York. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. New York will always be New York. Now, um, I want to go back really quick because I want to, first of all, I want to explain that I have worked for you in four different restaurants and bars in New York eons ago. Julie Reiner is, is the person who taught me how to be a bartender, a good bartender. Um, and I was there to help open your first place, Flatiron, uh, in the Flatiron District of New York. And I, I want to talk about that time where you decided to make the transition from being a, you know, a bar manager and kind of a consultant or employee to deciding to go and open your first place. What was that like for you? Well, you know, I realized, um, you know, when I first started out here in New York, it was in the mid it was like in the 90s, you know, late 90s. Um, and I realized very quickly that high end sort of, you know, gourmet cocktails, so to speak, um, were an anomaly in New York City. Everything was sour mix on the gun. And, mm -hmm. you know, and so I started doing taking a more culinary approach to cocktails and found myself on the front page of the food section of the New York Times. Um, and then New York Magazine kind of like overnight. So you know, in a city where everything has been done 10 times over, this was something that was like an untapped market. So um, now before everything closed, but you, you know, every city has a craft cocktail bar with, you know, rosemary and writing, lighting yeah. lemon on fire, but this wasn't happening at that time. Is that no. correct? Ju Julie really led the charge on this in New York. You are the one that got everyone paying attention. Well, and, and New York led the charge for the world. Right. Yeah. I mean, this was the beginning of the craft cocktail craze. Yeah. Well, I mean, before that, Dale, you know, Dale DeGroff was at the Rainbow Room uh, in right. the 80s and he was doing craft cocktails and using fresh juices. And, you know, he, you know, famously served Madonna Cosmopolitan and, you know. Right. <laughs> um, so there was definitely, you know, he kind of started a little bit of a kindling a fire with it. But yeah, I mean, so it was it was definitely a, a time in New York City when uh, people weren't really doing that. And so I very quickly was like, oh, I can open a, a, 
I should open a high-end cocktail bar that just focuses on classic drinks and house-made syrups and fresh juices and, you know, this sort of a a high-volume cocktail bar situation. When we opened Flatiron, we were kind of teaching people how to drink. I mean, New Yorkers Mm -hmm. were still drinking a lot of vodka. They were drinking lemon drops and Cosmopolitans. Um, you know, if we did like a, a flight back in time, it would be three classic cocktails, but the servers would verbal those drinks at the tables. And, you know, it really is oftentimes if they didn't order the flight, they would order one of the drinks on the flight. Right. So it kept them from saying, I'll have a vodka soda or right. a cosmopolitan. Um, and we would give them a money back guarantee that was like, you know what, if you don't like this drink, we'll give you that cosmopolitan. But 99% of the time they were like, oh, thank you for turning me onto this drink. And then mm-hmm. we gained ourselves a regular, you know. It is remarkable to think of, you know, these restaurants that would, you know, source ingredients and, you know, order cheese from Italy and snails from France and then use a maraschino cherry from Cisco. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Right. I still, you know, so, so often, so many people do ask me that I'm like, a lot of it was like right time, right place. You know, Mm -hmm. um, my timing was great. Had I done what I was doing in Ohio, nobody would have cared. Um, but, but as you said, you know, New York city, everything that happens here is global. So, you know, by, by opening Flatiron Lounge here and doing what we were doing, um, they were writing about it in Japan and Italy and Germany and, you know. Yeah, man, you were everywhere. You were all over the press. I remember when I moved to Los Angeles, which is kind of why I left, uh, I was starting to see, you know, Flatiron mentioned all over the place as being yeah. one of the best cocktail bars in the world. And certainly it was the best cocktail bar in New York City for many, many years running. Don't you agree? I hope. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I mean, it, it paved the way for, for a lot of other spots, you know, and then we, the the first time I went there was before I met Martha and my old business partner and I used to go to New York to steal ideas and steal cocktails (laughs) and stuff. And I'm sure that something you did wound up on one of our menus because we, we went and did flights and stuff like that. I I, I remember distinctly from that trip that we stole the apple martini from the, um, there was a hotel in union square area and everybody was ordering these apple teenies and they were disgusting (laughs) and they had some like actual apple product and they used this atomizer and stuff. And we brought that back to San Francisco. Yeah, well, speaking of having having things from Julie on our menu, um, Julie has contributed a cocktail menu to our new restaurant, the Mayor's House here in Dallas. So um, when we get open, you will be able. Did you guys do a strawberry basil martini at Flatiron back in yeah, the day? We did. Okay, uh, we stole that drink. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, strawberry and basil go hand in hand, so it's not. <laughs> yeah, but that came back with us from that trip. Well, good, uh, yeah. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's the kind of stuff, though, you know, that at that time, you know, we opened in 2003, and it's, we got people from all over the world who were coming in and asking questions and tasting things, and, you know, I was learning with all of them at the same time, but, uh you know, it, I love that that some of the things that we were doing sparked creativity in people all over the world, and and really took the you know the the craft cocktail and pushed it into the stratosphere. You know, um, it's crazy to look at where it's come. So, what was it like 
when uh, so we're we're in the middle of the pandemic, and then you know obviously the George Floyd stuff starts. What did, what was that like to have your bars in New York City and and have the protests and the riots? What what was the experience for your businesses and for you guys personally? Well, you know, we had only been open um, for our limited hours for two weeks at that point. Um, so, you know, we basically just had to pull our hours back from nine o'clock to eight o'clock because they put the curfew in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we we have, you know, supportive signs uh, up in our windows. And yeah, I just want uh, I regret using the word riots. I don't think that's a good characterization. I know that there was some looting and stuff, but I don't think they were. Riots yeah, there, no, there was there was some looting that occurred uh, mostly in Soho and on Fifth Avenue, um, you know, but again, that was very, I, I feel like the the, the protesters uh, and the looters were two very different groups of people. Mm-hmm. Um, what I saw in Brooklyn was all very um, peaceful protests. Um, so I, we didn't, didn't encounter anything that was um, scary in our area. Uh, we're in Carroll Gardens um, and I live in Gowanus. So I'm kind of off the beaten path and, you know, no, I wasn't near where the, you know, most of the. So, so if I was, if I was out protesting or if I was walking from the subway to a protest and I saw a bar that was selling cocktails to go, (laughs) I don't think I would be able to pass that up. Is that a a business opportunity at all? Absolutely. We, we have quite a few people who were stopping to, to grab a, a nice uh, Mai Tai on their way. Nice. That's why they were so peaceful. (laughs) Yeah, they were very peaceful with their Mai Tai. Julie, what do you think is going to happen in New York City in the next 12 months for businesses, for people? What what are you expecting as a New Yorker and as as a business owner in the city? Well, I mean, New Yorkers are resilient, as you know. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're fighters. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that New Yorkers want to make sure that we're safe, first and foremost. You know, we're everybody is really following the rules and, and what we're supposed to be doing. You know, that being said, they're anxious to really get back out there again. Um, I, I do see a move towards neighborhood a little bit more um, just because people aren't riding the subway as much. More people are going to be working from home more often. Um, and so, you know, people are really kind of staying more local, to, so to speak. Um to where they live in, in this parts of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think everybody's really anxious to sort of get back open, but to, to do it in a way that's safe. Um, Cause we really can't afford another shutdown uh, right. shut like this to, to reopen and then have to shut down again would kill so many more restaurants as it is. Are you, we're gonna- are you optimistic for the bar and hospitality industry in New York? in the next 12 months? Um, I, I mean, I'm optimistic. Yes. But I, at the same time, you know, I'm not, um, I, I think it's going to be a tough year, um, for everybody, you know, we're, we're sort of last on the list as far as that goes. And I'm just, I'm, I'm hopeful that they will find a vaccine. Um, yeah. because I think that that is really what it's going to take for the public to feel comfortable going out again and being in larger crowds. Um, but I'm hopeful that we'll get there. I mean, I've, my entire career is built off of 
you know, hosting groups of people celebrate various things together, you know? (laughs) So um, I have to be hopeful or else I won't want to get out of bed. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to stay hopeful. We're all going to stay hopeful. All right. Well, I think this is a good time to take that hopeful spirit and hear some fun stories. Julie, you're up. My very first bar manager job in New York. I was working at a place in the West Village um, that was a a tiny little lounge in the back of a restaurant. You had to walk through the restaurant to get to the bar. And it was sort of like a one-person bar, uh, and there were maybe like 12 tables. And when I started out there, you know, I, I was like, oh, so excited. You know, I got to sort of, I just moved to New York from San Francisco, and I wanted to talk to the chef about flavor pairings. And I wanted to sort of, as I was saying, take a culinary approach to cocktails and do my own menus and stuff. So I started putting out these various menus. I did some tiki nights um, and I started to build a following there. There was a a writer at the New York Times who was asking around about this apple martini that he had heard about that somebody had had in LA, ironically. I was making an apple martini with uh, Granny Smith green apples that I was infusing. So it was more like biting into an apple with a kick, you know, it was very natural tasting. And he came in and he ended up writing this article about the drinks I was doing and this apple martini in particular. And I went overnight from being, you know, just doing my thing in this little bar to being, you know, cocktail expert, Julie Reiner. The bar went from overnight just to being like super packed. And I worked, you know, I had been a cocktail waitress before that. So I was bartending and cocktail waitressing all the tables with just a bar back. And I went from, you know, doing okay there to, I was making a killing. (laughs) And I was hustling because that, you know, I, I was like powerhouse cocktail server. I'd go out and take the order. I'd come back I'd make the drinks and dropping them off. I'm serving food. I'm like running this show all by myself. You had to walk through the restaurant to get to the bar. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm doing this great job. I've made this this place busy for the owner. She's got to be so happy with me. Um, and it turned out that so the chef and the restaurant manager were angry because the restaurant had become a walkway to get to the bar in the back. So they're just watching all these people come by and then they're watching me count my, you know, hundreds of dollars at the end of the night. And they were mad. There's two men. They were mad. Um, And so they went to the owner and they said, she's going to open her own place and steal all of your clientele. I ended up getting called into her office with these two, the chef and the restaurant manager. And I was fired for doing, quote, too good of a job. I was heartbroken because I had never, I had never put more of myself into anything in my life. I thought that you wanted a busy bar. Isn't the idea to have as, to make as much money in the bar as possible, you know, to have Phil put butts in the seats and, you know, make as many drinks as you can. Cause that's what I would do if this were my bar. (laughs) 
you were fired from a job that was a restaurant for making it too much of a bar. And then what kind of business did you open on your own? A bar <laughs> that had absolutely no food. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I was like, I was so, it was funny actually, because then we opened and I ran into that chef uh, on Sixth Avenue, right around the corner from Flatiron Lounge. I ran into him and I was like, oh, so nice to see you. Yeah, I just opened my own bar. We don't serve food. Let's unpack this apple martini. This is probably not for the episode, but so, so we went to, uh, there was a hotel, I believe it was off of Union Square. It was green. I think it was called the Union Square Hotel. And then they had yeah. a basement. Yep. I a basement that bar. bar. No, and, that's the W the, Hotel. The W yeah. Hotel. No, no, was it, was a, it was a tiny little hotel yeah. and it might be Washington Square Park. Um, uh, uh, I think it was the Washington Square Hotel. It's probably still there. That's the one a, that I was at. That was me. <laughs> No. <laughs> so we stole your apple martini too. <laughs> yeah, it was C three hotel or well, the Washington Square Hotel. C three was connected to it. Oh, yeah, isn't that, that funny? Oh, there you oh go. All right. It's a big circle. <laughs> We're all connected. We're all connected. Thanks again for tuning in to While We Were Waiting. And thank you, thank you, thank you to our guest, Julie Reiner. You can find more information on Clover Club at cloverclubny.com and on Leyenda at leyendabk.com. You can also find Julie and all of her fabulous cocktail picks on Instagram at mixtressnyc. You can find us and our episode pictures at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. And if you'd like to share your stories with us, we definitely want to hear from you. Just shoot us an email at stories at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social platforms at Waiting Podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, please go leave us a review and hit that subscribe button anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until we meet again, take a stand, love your neighbor, and fight the good fight. Take care, everyone. Maybe if I close my eyes, I wake up back home. Maybe if I close my eyes.